Welcome to the PA Football Story Podcast, where your host, Chad Brubaker, will sit down and talk to coaches and players to discuss the classic stories and rich history surrounding the game of football in Pennsylvania. Please hit the subscribe button on your favorite podcast platform to get all of the latest content. You can also follow us on Twitter at the PA Football S1. Again, that's the PA Football S and the number one, or on our Facebook page, the PA Football Story Podcast. If you would like to contact us about advertising, please email us at pafootballstorypodcast at gmail.com. Today's guest on the PA Football Story Podcast is Four Chapman. Four played for his father, Harry Chapman, at Cumberland Valley High School, becoming a big 33 quarterback and played collegiately at Shippensburg University. Coach Chapman was the head football coach at Bishop McDevitt, Harrisburg, and Susquehanna Township, winning a AA state championship at McDevitt in 1995. He currently contributes to PA football by working for Big 33 for over 30 years and does color for local radio and TV broadcasts throughout the state. All right, good morning, Ford. Thanks for joining us on the uh, PA Football Story podcast. Now, before those people that um, may know of Ford, um, this podcast and the title of it is essentially like it could have a subtitle like the Four Chapman uh, presentation because of anybody or anybody's reputation in Pennsylvania for you um, – you kind of have a reputation for being being a pretty good storyteller. So um, this, we're, we're, it's good to have you on this morning. Thanks, Chad. I really appreciate it. All right. So um, we'll jump right in. Um, you know, you know, I was saying in, you know, before before we started here that, um, you know, your dad is known and has been known throughout the state. Um you know, for his coaching days at Cumberland Valley. But the one thing in in doing my research here and, and something that I hadn't really realized is that your father passed away at uh, a very young age, um, I believe 46 to bone marrow cancer. And that is something, honestly, that, that I hadn't realized. So I figured um, that would be a good place to start today um, because of, you know, the, you know, your dad's um, Cumberland Valley is the field is named after, you know, your dad. And, um, he had a lot of success at Cumberland Valley. So, um, let's start there. Sure. First off, my dad grew up in, in Harrisburg and went to John Harris high school. And after graduation, he played three sports at Shippensburg okay. and football, basketball, and track. And, and that's in college, you know, that's, that's, an, it was a different era, right? Yes, absolutely. But it's very important to what couple things that we're going to discuss, I think. Sure. And, and we've had a lot of changes in that avenue with specification of sports and high school, even, and even younger than high school that, that we hear talked about a lot, pros and cons. And my dad having played three sports in college and just real quickly, he, he broke his ankle in football his first week in college. Wow. So he had one extra year of eligibility in football. So he played his fifth year of football at ship and then got hired by George Chomp 
at my dad's high school alma mater, John Harris, which is now okay. known as Harrisburg High. Right. So at John Harris, my dad coached the JV team, head JV coach for two years under Chomp. And then Chomp went to Ohio State, was hired by Woody Hayes in 1966, 68, excuse me. My dad was hired in 66 at John Harris. And then Mickey Minnick, who was an, an assistant, had gone to William Penn, John Harris's sister school at the time. Mickey became the head coach. So my dad coached with Mickey for three years. So five years total at his alma mater. And during that time, just want to share a couple of things. I think people will find very interesting. Sure. John Harris had a phenomenal football team with a lot of really good athletes, a great mixture of white and black athletes mm-hmm. that blended together in an era where racial strife was, was an issue throughout our country, especially obviously in the South. And it was unique because John Harris really, everybody just molded and blended together. Now I was a young kid at the time. My parents had me when I was in college. So when they were in college, yeah, when they were in college. So yeah. I was able to sort of, as a young boy, witness some of this unique stuff that was going on at John Harris and the football program. And, and George Chop was way ahead of his time from an X and O standpoint and continued to be and often would try to encourage Woody Hayes to be a little bit more multiple offensively. And, <laughs> and it didn't work a lot of times, but over the over that era of the late 60s into the 70s, he was able to get Woody to be a little bit more diverse nonetheless. But so in those John Harris years, my dad was given the opportunity to run the off-season football program, the weight training, the conditioning, the sprinting, all that stuff. And he he really took to it and and went after it. And it he had a lot of great athletes at John Harris at the time, but with Chomps coaching and the other assistants and whatnot. And then you had the this group that was so well conditioned, had great speed, agility, and it just was a, a juggernaut of football in the area. Obviously no playoffs yet. Right. So you finished at the end of the regular season. And John Harris had people that, Chad, you would have heard of a lot of people that heard of, like Dennis Green, who became the coach of the Vikings sure. and the Cardinals. And he was a running back who went to Iowa. They had Jimmy Jones, a great quarterback, who was a year younger than that. And he went to USC, started for three years. And Jan White was a, a great tight end, at, at, at receiver slash tight end, great track runner. He was at Ohio State on their 68 national championship team, started for the Buffalo Bills. He had a lot of great talent. And the foundation for success, I think, was put right there in my dad's lap, basically, to understand through George Chomp, through Mickey Minnick, how to run a program properly. Right. And to be involved in that gave him, I believe, an awful lot of confidence when he became a head coach after those five years as an assistant. One thing I wanted to throw out to you that a great story quickly is John Harris had a 39 game winning streak in that time period. And going into the 68 season, Mickey Minnick's first as a head coach, and many recognize the Mickey Minnick name. He ran the big 33 for quite some time in the 80s and 90s. And Mickey sort of took over where Chomp left off. The 39-game winning streak was really spectacular. They had to go to a rival school, Steel High. Back then, Steel and Highspire played at the top level, even though they're a small school. Right, right. Football and basketball, they were able to have great success. And – 
Steel High upset John Harris 18 to 7 in that 68 season at Cottage Hill at Steel High. And the next year, they met late in the season, two games left in the season, and both teams were undefeated, ranked number one and number two in the state of Pennsylvania. They played at Severance Field at John Harris. And a really unique thing that I was five years old at the time and remember a decent amount of the game, but John Harris ended up winning that game 49 to nothing. <laughs> it was spectacular. And I inherited the game ball from my father signed by the players from that 49 to nothing game. Now, the interesting thing, there's one game left in the season and John Harris always played their sister school, William Penn at Hershey Stadium. 10 a.m. Thanksgiving morning, and it was a real big rivalry, like a lot of them we know throughout the state of Pennsylvania that played on Thanksgiving. And hey, before we go too far into that, just to to note, you're not talking about William Penn York, correct? We're, We're talking, talking about William Penn of Harrisburg. Yeah, which and a lot two of years later, are. William Penn and John Harris joined Chad to be right. Harris, what we now know as Harrisburg High, starting right. in the 71 72 school year. Right. So this game at, th at Thanksgiving Day. William Penn had a losing record, and both teams did not have two scrimmages. The teams they were supposed to play were unable to scrimmage, so they agreed to play each other, which you usually don't want to do in a scrimmage if you're going to play them later in the year, but right. they did. John Harris annihilated William Penn. And let's get fast forward to this Thanksgiving Day game. It ended in a 6-6 tie. Oh, wow. William Penn played the game of their lives. And we're able to find a way to keep John Harris from going undefeated. John Harris still finished number one in the state in the rankings, but had a blemish on the record with that tie. And it was a unique time for, for William Penn to, to pull that off. And it goes back to the one adage that, you know, we learn over time, never underestimate the power of your opponent. Sure. Because at any time, you know, we'd all know that it, it could happen. And anyway, I think, my dad developed a key foundation to be successful in high school football with the work ethic, the, the coaches' meetings, the preparation, the, the planning, the off-season program, et cetera. So in 1971, my, right when John Harris and William Penn were joining to be Harrisburg High, that previous spring, my dad got hired at Cumberland Valley. And it wasn't the Cumberland Valley football that we all know Right. And, you know, right. I know Chad, you have, your team has Springford has played them several times, and I've gone yeah. to a few of those games. And it's not that Cumberland Valley from the 80s, 90s, and 2000s. Right. What I, it was growing, and enrollment was increasing to the point where they were going to get upwards of you know six, seven hundred in the graduating class. But at the time, it was less than that. And the teams that dominated the Central Penn League were Middletown, Hershey, Milton Hershey, not Cumberland Valley, and. When my dad got to Cumberland Valley the first year, they went eight and three and had a successful season, but they lost to Middletown 50-something to 24. It wasn't even close. Yeah. And in 72, Middletown handled them again. And 73, 74, 75, those first five years, Middletown beat Cumberland Valley. And it took a while for Cumberland Valley for the system to be implemented. And over that time, my dad went to a Eliminated on the split end a lot and went to a double tight with a, mm -hmm. you know, a, with a Z back who would go in the power eye or the wing or the flanker. And 
really balanced up the defense more and really relied on a lot of physicality. And they worked like crazy with the weight training and conditioning and the sprinting and all the things that you do outside of the regular season to establish a, a that that foundation of, of physicality and success. And they played great team defense. They stopped the run and for the most part and were able to have a lot of success. And I, I growing up during that time, was able to see, you know, my dad had two quarterbacks back-to-back that both started for three years, Pat Bowen and Stan Galbaugh. Pat went to South Carolina and started four years at safety. He was the big 33 starting quarterback for the East. And Stan Galbaugh had a great career at Maryland and in the in the World League and then in the NFL as well. So they both wore number 13. I knew them as my two dads, my dad's two quarterbacks over six years. And I followed Galbaugh and for two years. And obviously I wanted to wear 13, you know, and yeah, Damon Thielen, it was a big 33 quarterback after me. And he started two years and wore 13 and went to Colgate. And, you know, we had a, a good run there. And during that time, Chad, Mechanicsburg, our rival school right nearby had Sean Abner, who was a number one draft choice in major league baseball, great quarterback. Yeah. And got a full ride to Georgia, but went to play baseball. Scott Ernie was right at one year after Abner played in the world league and, you know, drafted by the Broncos had a great career in high school and college at Rutgers. And, and then right after that, Chris Hakel who played at William and Mary and was drafted by the Redskins. It was unique time that we had a lot of quarterbacks in a, in that span very close together. But what I wanted to get to next was back in 1970, when my dad was an assistant at John Harris under Mickey, Mickey was the head big 33 coach. Okay. And I'm going on six, I'm six years old. And my dad, I tag along with him. He was so fortunate that he always let me go scouting with the coaches. And back then you scouted almost all the time. Cause you either had sure. a Friday or a Saturday game, your opponents played a different time. And also going to just the football season program. I was there all the time with them. And I, you know, got to know the players, got to just be around and see, how things were done. And most importantly, I think was, was able to be up close to the John Harris years and the Cumberland Valley years of watching players and teams compete to the best of their ability mm-hmm. and what it took to get, which, you know, you learn Chad, I learned, we learn the formula basically of what it takes to be successful, the commitment and just the never no quit attitude, all those things. And I was extremely fortunate to be able to be around that up close at a young age and all through growing up. Yeah. And I think it really helped give me a a leg up on understanding what it took and being willing to put the time and effort in, you know, my dad, his first 10 years at Cumberland Valley as a head football coach, he never missed one Monday, Wednesday, Friday, summer weight training session. Kids could come to the morning, one or the evening. Some came to both, but he never missed one. If we were yeah. going to go on vacation, we'd go to like to the Jersey beach on Friday night after weight training. We'd get back Sunday night, you know, two days later, because my dad had to be at Monday morning weight training, open it up at seven 30. And my mom understood that, you know, my mom was a hard worker. She had me in college, dropped out of school, went back and got her degree and master's degree and was a teacher at steel high. And she understood the work ethic and what it took. And it, when, when a football coach is married, it's so important that you have a wife and children that understand 
the effort and the commitment you're going to put into it. And, and I, I'm tons of coaches go through that same thing. And, and my dad was fortunate to have that as well. Yeah. It's funny you bring that up because a couple of years ago at Springford, um, they decided in the summertime, Fridays are closed. The whole campus is closed. So we had to amend our, you know, our lifting schedule to Mondays, Tuesdays, and Thursdays. And initially I hated it, but now like what you said, so a lot of our summer vacations, my wife and I and kids were leaving Thursday, you know, after lifting sure. and then, you know, coming back Sunday night so I can be there Monday morning. So I actually kind of, I don't mind it as much now. Because you get extra day. That, yeah, I get that extended day. But yeah, same yeah. thing, right? So back to the 1970 Big 33 game that Mickey Minnick, John Harris coach, was the head coach. John Gursky from Wilson was also on that staff. Yeah. And my dad said, come on, we're going to go over to Hershey for big 33 practice. And once I, like I said, I'm six years old and we get there and we're watching. And all of a sudden Mickey says to my dad, cause my dad was on mixed staff at John Harris. He says, Harry, jump in, help us coach. Can you coach the running backs here in these individual drills? And so my dad did that and was involved in the coaching at practice that day for a while. And one of his running backs was John Capaletti. Yeah, went to seventy three Heisman four years later at Penn State, and and it's it's I bring that up because in my dad's started in seventy one at Cumberland Valley. By seventy seven, his team went undefeated. They were eleven zero and ranked one of the top five teams in the state. And he was an assistant Big Thirty three coach, which I got to be around that you know yeah. during that time. And sure enough, one of his assistant. One of, a coach with him, they were both assistants at the time, was George Curry from Berwick. Yeah. And they became really good buddies through that. And I watched the East versus West end, and the East was underdogs, and the, the East team played great, and they ended up beating the West 28-6. to And the West quarterbacks were Frank Rocco and Jim Kelly. And, you know, the East had a lineman, Mike Munchak, who's well-known, and a lot yeah. of other really good players. And after the game, I remember being on the Hershey Stadium field with my dad, and he said, Four, I got to go over. I'm, I'm going to go say goodbye to a lot of these players that we coached this week because I may never see them again. And I watched that. I watched the interaction. And it was here I was going into eighth grade at the time, and the, the, the relationships that were built through that week from player to player, coach to player, coach to coach, can really last a long time and be very influential on a lot of people. And that's the first I saw it. And then I witnessed it in the early nineties when Mickey was in charge and Mickey and John Weaver, who helps with Mickey, you know, John helps to this day, got me involved. And I was able to have relationships with so many coaches that I maybe knew a little bit of, or had never met before. Sure. And you spend a week together and, you know, being on as an assistant, just helper on the big 33 staff back in the 90s, when I was an early head coach, it was it was really unique. And I looked at some of the guys that you have interviewed for this show and like like Coach Pennepacker, total piece of work, but a really good football coach. <laughs> Absolutely. Guys I became really close to, like Jim Cantapia, yeah. who you coached with, Chad, yeah. and, you know, his ability to to – put his team in the best opportunity to win and not do things by the the norm that was, you know, run first type offense that was 
basically all that Pennsylvania football knew. And I'll get to that later, but that was really cool. So I got to develop so many fabulous relationships to this day, working with big 33 and Gary Cathell and the, all the guys that have given me an opportunity, starting with Mickey Minnick and John Weaver, it's just been a fabulous opportunity. Yeah. So let's um, go back to a little bit, circle back to your dad at Cumberland Valley. You know, he was had a career record of, you know, I think he had 151 wins, somewhere around that. Uh, you know, a lot of championships, both league championships and then uh, um, district playoffs. You mentioned that playoffs weren't, you know, around when, um, they he first started and, um, but he ended up with three district championships. I think to this day, Cumberland Valley still has the most district three championships, um, at the highest level. Yeah. At, at the, the top level, level quad right. A or now six A, no doubt. Right, right, right. So talk a little bit about your, uh, your, your dad. Um, I think you said he was undefeated in 77 mm-hmm. and then, you know, continued, you know, they continue to be good for quite some time. Yeah, well, the the Mid-Pen Conference and the District 3 playoffs both started the same year. It just happened to be my senior year going into it. So the 82-83 school year, we had a, a, a large group of teams that we were playing, Chad, for the first time. And we had scrimmaged Steel High for a while prior to that, had great scrimmages. Mickey Minnick ended up becoming the head coach at Steel High in 77, so... They had several really, really good scrimmages with my dad's team. And then remember my dad was looking at, he felt almost that that scrimmage was almost too intense and that we weren't definitely getting prepared for the Dallas town game, our first game of the year back then uh, mentally and emotionally because of that huge steel high thing. So my sophomore year, the 80 football season, we picked up, my dad talked to Gursky and we picked up Wilson as a scrimmage and it ended up being a great scrimmage for numerous years. Then we ended up playing them some in the playoffs after having scrimmaged them. But nonetheless, I remember sitting in the bleachers after our JV scrimmage behind the visiting bleachers at Wilson, the first year we scrimmaged them in 1980 and watching the varsity, we had a really good varsity team. Stan Galball was a senior along with some other really good seniors. And Wilson had a really good program. Sure. And I'm both teams wearing red and white. And I'm watching this scrimmage thinking these are two extremely similar programs, both from District 3, but just from different areas. Areas, And you got John Gursky, hardcore, physical, great leader. Very big man. Big man, intimidator. And you got my dad who, you know, Six four, not as not a lineman. He's a quarterback and d- defensive back. But you know, six four, and it, I'm thinking these two teams do it the right way. Yeah, and it was really cool to see. And then I was obviously involved as a quarterback and safety on the varsity the next two years, uh, scrimmaging Wilson and Coach Gersey had stepped down my senior year and. Uh, was replaced by an, another great, great football coach. Jerry Slemmer. Jerry Slemmer. And another big did man. Did really a lot of good things at Wilson. Yeah. Yeah. So the point I was making is it was really interesting to see how, as I was growing up, to see the way coaches ran their program, what they demanded, and how they 
competed and got their players to compete at such a high level. And, you know, go back to the guys that you had already talked to on your show. Look at Bob Palco. I mean, I got to really know Bob at when he was the head big 33 coach. And he did such a good job. And I noticed very quickly he could coach almost any position on the field. He also started out coaching with George Chop. I didn't know that. Yes, yes, as a grad assistant. And, you know, Palco, after I listened to that show you did with him yesterday, and, you know, he sort of said how he wasn't ready to retire yet, but I knew he stepped down at West Allegheny as a teacher and then eventually as a coach. And sure enough, he gets back. And what a story. And what he did two seasons ago with that Mount Lebanon football team and getting them to the pinnacle and beating St. Joe's Prep, a juggernaut of a program, and just then having several of his kids at Big 33 last year and watching the way those kids handled themselves, the way they played their position and competed play in and play out, they weren't all the greatest five-star players. But I'll tell you what, Chad, they – were the nucleus of that football team. And it was impressive to see. And hats off to Bob and his staff for doing what they did after having, you know, going to those three title games at West Allegheny with Tyler being the quarterback and them coming so close to beating Strathaven, then coming so close again. And then finally the third year, they get over the mountaintop and win West Allegheny wins the state title over Strathaven once again. And then to see Bob come back, over a decade later and do it with another program just says an awful lot about what he is about. Yeah. Yeah. Bob's a good guy. I like talking to Bob. I got to know him through PSFCA and we were both on, uh, both on the quarterback committee. And is that's, that's a experience in itself too, being on, you know, choosing the big 33 team. I mean, I'm thankful that I'm, uh, old enough that uh, we didn't have to watch ever watch VHS tapes or, or DVDs. You know, Chad, <laughs> it's interesting because when I when my when my dad coached in the Big Thirty Three as an assistant and then a head coach, as I mentioned, same thing with George Curry. And when I was fortunate enough to play in it, as were three of the quarterbacks right around me at Cumberland Valley, we had four quarterbacks in a row in the Big Thirty Three game. It was East versus West. Yeah, right. So wasn't we had against twice as many. Really. Wasn't against Ohio. Wasn't against Maryland. No. And and not that I'm against playing another state, but it it just gave many more opportunities. Now, obviously, we have the East, you know, two East-West games. But back then, it was just the big 33. So you were picking basically 68 players instead of 34. Right. You know, which gave twice as many people the opportunity to participate, no doubt. Right. Yeah. So I want to tell you real quickly the quick story. The I always just assumed when my dad was a head coach that I could be a ball boy, you know, or like a manager of the football team. Right. But my dad learned under George Chop and Mickey Minnick the importance of everybody having a specific role and having no nonsense whatsoever, no distractions, no outside influences in the locker room, on the sidelines, you know, all those things at practice. And it, I'm going through, you know, I'm in second grade when my dad is in his first year. Like I said, he included me going scouting, weight training, and all the other things. I could do a lot of that stuff. And, 
You know, my dad coached track all those years too and ended up becoming a head boys and girls track coach. Like Coach Dobbs yeah, right. is involved in track at Wilson. It's great to do it. But that was a big thing for my dad because he was encouraging. If you were a football player that didn't play baseball, you were highly, highly encouraged to go out for track, whether you're a, a thrower, you know, a lineman, right. or whether you were a, a middle distance runner, a sprinter, a jumper, whatever. And they both sort of went hand in hand, both at John Harris and at Cumberland Valley. And I thought that was a big asset for the program to work on, you know, getting faster and just being involved. In any event, I was never able to be on the sidelines at my dad's football games. He didn't let you. The scrimmage was fine, but once the season started, no. And <laughs> I'm, I'm in fifth grade, and my birthday's in late October, and the coaches came over for dinner. My mom made dinner before they. we all went scouting, and I got a birthday card signed by the coaches that said, you can be the manager for the rival Mechanicsburg game next week at home, the last home game. And it was my dad's first championship league season in 74. And we won the game handily. And I was a manager. My dad came in and said, hey, you did a pretty good job. I didn't do much. You know, I wasn't like right. the main ball boy. He goes, we got one more game at Paul Meyer. Would you like to do that one too? I said, sure. So I was all excited. Thinking the next year, Chad, I'm going to be You're right. the Cumberland Valley ball boy. Right. So we get to next year and no. <laughs> and <I'm> not- <laughs> And it basically was everybody had a role. My dad only dressed 35-ish players for varsity. Oh, really? Most teams did, but we separated varsity and JV practice. I'm sure the Wilsons and this, I know Bob Craig at Cedar Cliff did the same. And but you know, if you were on the varsity and practicing with the varsity, you had some role. Maybe you were just on one or two special teams, but you took that role very seriously. And there were a lot of role players at Cumberland Valley. And my dad just felt that I wasn't, I would have been dialed in. I think he knew that, but he just wanted to sort of make it something that I could aspire to have. And yeah. not until I was in eighth grade where I, he said, you come to every, we had three a days, you know, eight right. in the morning to eight at night at summer camp. And he said, if you come to every practice, you don't, you can miss for your midget football practice at night. But other than that, you got to come to every practice. You can be the ball boy. And it, I wish it were different. I wish I would have done it since I was in second, third grade, but it really taught me the importance of, taking it seriously and being committed to a simple job like being the ball boy and the team manager, you know, and I was able to do that in eighth grade. I did it in ninth grade for the varsity, you know, and I played on the freshman team. And then it, those two years was, it, it, it taught me a lot, as I said, and it allowed me to be up close and personal with the program, but not take it for granted. Like it was just assumed that I was going to be there and be able to do something, you know? Sure. And that's just how he was. And every, his players took on that same persona of having a role and doing it to the very, very best of that person's ability. And I felt the preparation, the Sunday coaches meetings, the, the organization, the scouting, the knowing of the opponent, the attention to detail at practice, the adjustments, both during the game or in the locker room at halftime game day, all those things, I learned a ton about. Yeah. So when I became, was fortunate enough to get the job at McDevitt it, for the 91 season, you know, my second year out of college, I, I was, I had a lot of, of just experience of learning those things in advance, sure. so to speak. And then I hired a lot of guys who played for my dad, loyal friends of mine, teammates of mine who knew the formula. Right. And, 
guys that you know, like Mike Whitehead. Sure. It was a little bit younger than I was, but it, it and then got guys that, that were like Joe Heaton, who, you know, who went to McDevitt. Yeah. I hired a few years after that and just did a fabulous job. All three places I've been a head coach. Joe Heaton's been a loyal, dedicated assistant. And, you know, guys like Kevin Lawrence, who and I, I thought having being at schools that I've coached as a head coach, all being, you know, racially diverse. I thought it was mm-hmm. very important to have a racially diverse staff. Yeah. And Kevin Lawrence, uh, uh, another black coach who was our head JV coach at McDevitt, did a fabulous job. It just gave us an opportunity for to have some, you know, a diverse coaching staff that hopefully could relate really well to the kids we were coaching. And it, 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 it really worked. Yeah. Yeah. So you got the job at McDevitt and that was um, what, what was your first year? My first year, John Weaver, who I'd already known was the head coach at East Pennsboro. Okay. I was an assistant at East Penn with him for that year. And McDevitt took on a change. I had never been associated with a private or Catholic school before, but my dad, unfortunately, First of all, my mom got cancer and died at age 39 rather quickly. And about our, my mom died in early June of uh, 84. And then about a month later, my dad, who was healthy his whole life, was 42 at the time, found out that he had bone cancer and was in and out of Johns Hopkins Holy Spirit Hospital, Harrisburg Hospital, two local hospitals in Harrisburg. And he, fortunately, it didn't look good. And all of a sudden, he sort of went in remission. Okay. And was not able to do the things he once was due to the bone cancer. But, you know, my dad would compete with me at basketball. He'd be scrappy, play with his basket with football (laughs) players. He'd open the gym Tuesday nights in the winter and they would play hard and then go over the high school game. It's things like that. And he, he wasn't able to do those things, play scout team quarterback, hold the pads yeah, right, for like right. different drills. And, and, but through the 85, 86 and 87 season, he was able to do, was able to coach football and track and, and do it well. And then unfortunately he, the cancer came back. And at that time, Tim Rimfel was looking to get into a public school. So Tim had been, had gone to McDevitt. He had been the head coach at McDevitt for several years and had great success. Obviously the 85 team, most people know about with Sean Borowski, Jimmy Bryant, and Ricky Waters, three division one running backs. And yeah, that's not, that's not a bad lineup. That's right. Not to mention they had three younger running backs that were division one running backs too. How about having six running backs, nine through 12 yeah, in your crazy. school? Woo! <laughs> division one. So anyway, here's what happened. Tim got a teaching job in social studies at Cumberland Valley and was my dad's assistant for the 88 season. My dad's last year alive. Yeah. It didn't look like my dad was going to coach in 88. And I think Rimfel would have been in the interim coach at that point. And amazingly, the closer the football season got to it, my dad just almost mentally willed himself to be able to coach football he was in a hospital bed for four to five months. Wow. Without even able to get out of the hospital bed. It was it was a tough one. And just to see his willpower and strength and never literally never say die attitude was an influence to a lot of people and that would come visit him and whatnot. And he ended up coaching Chad that last year, 88. That was the first year of state playoffs 
actually right. coached from a golf cart. And I would wheel them around in a wheelchair the day of the game. Once the game started, they didn't want the golf cart too close to the sidelines for safety reasons. And sure. he coached that season and then died that spring in 89 at age 46. And, you know, personally, I look at, I consider myself extremely fortunate in a lot of ways, having gotten through high school, uh, having a mom and dad who were healthy, whereas my I have one sibling, my little sister's 10 and a half years younger than I, and she was nine when our mom died, and oh wow, yeah, 13 when our dad died, and it, you know, she had to go all through high school. She was in eighth grade, in the spring of eighth grade when our dad died. She went the same same year as John Ritchie, Cumberland's great fullback and stuff, sure. and and she had to go all through high school without our dad even being there, without our mom being alive. And other families really stepped up and really, really helped her to become the woman that she is today in yeah. place of our parents. And uh, it was extremely difficult, tough time. A lot of other people have gone through tragedies like that. And it's something that just, you know, you got to just stay strong. And and my parents taught my sister and me to to live the best way that you can and be strong through adversity. And it really came into play there. And, you know, while my sister and I, obviously we miss our parents every day, it's just something that you have to learn to live with. And they gave the best of what they had for the years they were alive and influenced hopefully a lot of other people to be the best that they can be. And I've tried to take that with me throughout life. Yeah. Yeah. That's pretty amazing. I did see a picture again, uh, trying to prep for our conversation. I saw a picture of your dad, you know, on the sideline in a wheelchair. And again, that's something that I did not, I was not aware of. Um, but that was a pretty powerful picture. How about and, it? Yeah. Thanks, uh, Chad. Yeah. Crazy, crazy, crazy. So you started at McDevitt in what year? 91, 1991. 91. Yeah. I was 26 years old and just very, very excited, especially to get into mid-pen division one, which they now call the Commonwealth. Sure. Chad, it was it was at an unbelievable, unbelievably high peak talent-wise at the time. Yeah. 90, 91, 92, 93, those seasons especially, and even in the 94 and 95. But just real quickly, like in 1990. Wilson had their great run in 89 with Kerry Collins, and they lost the state championship game in a close one upper St. Clair. And then 1990, I was fortunate to be asked to do certain games in the playoffs on the radio as a color commentator yeah. at a young age and in my early 20s to mid-20s. And I loved doing it. And my last year of college was getting my teaching certification after I graduated in, at Shippensburg. And, and I had an opportunity to – do the Wilson Cumberland Valley district final at Hershey stadium. What a football game. Yeah. And Jerry Slemmer's team, Tim Rimple's team, they both were just physical and rugged. And these two running backs from Wilson were just tough as nails. And they would do this little semi sprint and both backs would just devour the defensive end from Cumberland Valley. And this little lefty quarterback after Kerry Collins, he had good accuracy, he was scrappy and he did a great job. And, that game went back and forth. John Ritchie was a sophomore fullback, had a great game. Cumberland Valley had a really good football player, also happened to be a kicker, Jeff Sabe, who could boot it, who could kick it 50 yards. And that game went back and forth. 
And the last couple seconds, Wilson, it looked like they were going to lose. They needed a touchdown. And the quarterback got sacked going towards the highway at Hershey Stadium. They were like on the 30-some yard line. No timeouts left. The clock's going 10, 9, 8. He drops back for the last play of the game and throws one in the right corner of the end zone. And the defensive back for Cumberland Valley slipped, and the guy for Wilson, receiver, caught it in the back of the end zone, and Wilson beat Cumberland Valley. And that was Rimfel's second year as the head coach at Cumberland Valley. And they had lost to Wilson the year before in the playoffs, back when only four teams got in the playoffs in our district. And Wilson had a two-year run there that was great. They ended up getting upset by uh, Ridley in the Eastern final. And the following year, 91, Cumberland Valley was loaded. Harrisburg was loaded. Cedar Cliff ended up winning the mid-pen. Bob Craig, a legendary football and wrestling coach at Cedar Cliff. They went 10-0-1. They tied Cumberland Valley 0-0. Happened to go to the game, and it was the most exciting 0-0 game you could imagine, (laughs) except for one, when Curry in 97, when Curry and Cantafio went head-to-head, Berwick and Wyoming Valley West, which Cantafio's team won. I went to that one. They won 3 nothing in overtime at Berwick. Incredible game. But anyway, the 90-91 at Central Dolphin had a really good team with quarterback Rocky Wright. So all these teams are really solid. Don Fulmer was building Chambersburg. Yeah. And all the teams, Chad, were super physical. Like what you hear so far? Make sure you never miss a show by clicking the subscribe button now. This podcast is made possible by listeners like you. Thank you for your support. Now back to the show. I realized rather quickly, while we were a little bit more diverse, we still ran a lot of double tight, but we did some things, even including going to empty, which teams didn't even really have to defend at the time. Sure. Miami had done a little bit of it in those previous couple years, and but it really didn't come down to the high school level. The only school I saw that really had it, was doing it that way was Conestoga Valley and Jim Cantafio. And I went to watch his team play that year in the Eastern final against Shemokin at at Bucknell. And Shemokin had a phenomenal run-stopping defense, a big physical 52 defensive team. And Cantavio was running one back and empty and (laughs) just mixing things up. And Shemokin, as good as they were against running, could not stop it. Yeah. I'm watching this guy who I had maybe met once before at a clinic, but really never had a conversation with. And I'm watching Jim Cantafio with the Newman coaching gloves on and (laughs) dialing and and running the offense, no huddle offense, and just being multiple formations, being so diverse and multiple and having just a, a, a group of players that are playing with passion and, doing it a little bit of a different way. Yeah. And that year, that summer, he was an assistant big 33 coach. And I had just started to work with big 33. I spent the week with the coaches and Cantafio and I became really good buddies right then and there. And we've been good friends ever since. And I bring that up mainly because I realized that McDevitt, we didn't have the Ricky waters and these kind of players. And we realized we had some good, solid football players. Don't get me wrong. Yeah, sure. But they were two and nine when I had taken over three years after Rimfel was gone and the program had taken a downslide and we're trying to build it back up. And we realized that in doing so, we're going to have to be 
even though we're doing a lot of the off-season stuff and a lot of the organizational stuff, very similar to what my dad did at Cumberland Valley, we're going to do it a little bit differently offensively. Defensively, we're going to be tough and strong and, and stop the run of these big physical teams. But the first year, Chad, we almost upset Cedarcliff, the best team in the league. We lost 27-21. They scored late after we threw an interception. And that was Kyle and, Brady? Pardon me? Was that Kyle Brady? Kyle, well, Kyle Brady, Brady had, was, had already graduated, yeah. Oh, yeah, you're saying, okay, right after like 92, right. Years after him. So, yeah. But they had a heck of a team, and and Bob Craig did such a good job playing physical football through that era, the 60s and the 70s and the 80s and into the 90s. Anyway, so by the end of the year, our team was overwhelmed by the physicality and the athleticism of Lake Harrisburg. So we're playing Harrisburg, the third to last game of that year, my first year at McDevitt at Harrisburg. And I said to our AD, I said, hey, we don't need a bus to go to Harrisburg. So what are you talking about? I said, we're just going to walk two and a half blocks down the street because we're right on Market Street across the street and down up that far. And sure. he said, what about coming back? I said, we don't need a bus coming back either. So that's the first year that had ever happened. And from that year on, until McDevitt relocated with a new building years later, either the Harrisburg team or the McDevitt team would walk back and forth for the game. So our walk back that year was crazy because it was a sad one because we got beat 65 to 18. The most points ever scored by a Harrisburg team. The announcer came on and said it there at the end of the game. And they had Robert Kate who was a great college and pro player, great athlete. Ahmad Collins, who was a, just Sean Lee, whose son's the quarterback. Now, those both those guys went to Penn State. Yeah, right. They had athletes all over the field, incredible talent, very similar to what John Harris had back in the day. So, you know, interesting. The, the week before that, we had lost to Ray Ernie's Carlisle team, who had also coached with Chop at, at John Harris. We had lost 19 to 15. So we lose to Carlisle in a close game on our homecoming, 1915. We go to Harrisburg the next week and lose 65 to 18. Interestingly, the very next week, Harrisburg went to Carlisle, like a round robin. Yeah. You would think Harrisburg would win probably like 45 to 14, right? Something like yeah, that. Because sure. we just lost to Carlisle by a little bit and got killed by Harrisburg. Final score, Carlisle three, Harrisburg nothing. <laughs> so here I am, 20, 20. Yeah, here I am in my mid-20s, and I'm going, I've been around football my whole life, and I'm like, I, I chalked one up. It, it goes back to you just can never count a team out. Sure. And Ray Ernie played hard school, 52 defense. They stopped the run, and they ran the wing key. They kept the ball out of Harrisburg's hands. They got a few turnovers, and they kept the score low and won 3 nothing. Yeah. But anyway, I always say too, last game of the year, we lose. Go ahead. Sorry. Go ahead. No, no. I always say, too, you know, you're dealing with – 16, 17, 18-year-old kids who, by the way, are looking at those box scores. You're darn they're, right. They're, they're coming in thinking, well, we scored 65. You know, they barely beat Bishop McDevitt. We're good. You know? How about it? And you, it, that's one of the hardest things in coaching is convincing kids uh, that that score is not indicative of how this game's going to go. you got to absolutely you know, take every game seriously. So we go – we go to Cumberland Valley. I got to go back my first time ever, Chad, being at Cumberland Valley, coaching, you know, playing against CV. And Tim Rimfel has a really, really good team. And they 
beat us 50 to seven. This is the year before they won the state title. They beat us 50 to seven. And as I said, we had just gotten beat 65, 18 to Harrisburg two weeks earlier. And we finished two and nine, the same record that we had a lot of progress from the year before from the previous regime, but nonetheless, two and nine is not what we're looking for. Right. But you know what we had to do? We just went back to what I had learned growing up and we just went back and we just kept working harder sure. and we kept getting guys to believe. Now, fortunately at McDevitt, we had an opportunity to get a few transfers in and whatnot, but also we had an eighth grade class coming in that was coming into ninth grade. That was going to be very, very talented. And they ended up being the seniors on our state championship team in 95. So we get to 92. We work super, super hard in the off season and our players really bought in and believed in the program. And we ended up going eight and three. We lost a Chambersburg was getting better and better. They kicked our butts in week five after we were four and oh, but then we lost to Harrisburg 19 to seven played a much better game than we had the year before, but we were battling. So the last game of the year, we got to go to Cumberland Valley. Same place. We played the last game of the season before that Cumberland Valley's number one, in the state 10 and zero, and Unfortunately, only four teams got in the playoffs still at that point, which yeah, right. Dan Caffey and I went to many meetings, as did some other coaches, to try to convince District 3 to expand the playoffs, but it just wasn't happening at that point. So here we are. We were AAA, and, you know, Mannheim Central was the was just obviously the class of AAA. Mike Williams just did such an outstanding job with that program and just so admirable of what he did for Another decades guy who- there. Another guy who adapted, started out, you know, basically veer, you know, veer option. And then uh, it helps when you have a couple quarterbacks like they did, you know, Matt Nagy and no doubt and, uh, uh, smoker smoker. Right. Yeah, exactly. But, but even before those two quarterbacks, he had a system. And I remember watching his team for the first time against Elizabethtown in the 89 district final at Hershey stadium. And what a game that was. Oh, yeah. Same exact score, believe it or not, as the game two weeks earlier that they yep. played. And Mannheim won them both 15 to 14 and got very fortunate. Mannheim did in the district final because their quarterback, number seven, threw a pick late in the game with like two minutes left. And all his number 21 for E-Town had to do was fall down. Yeah. And he ran around. That was the, and ran was around that the and, district championship game? Yep. Yeah. He got hit. The ball popped out. And the quarterback for Mannheim, I don't know his name, but number seven, Picked it up on one hop and ran it back for a touchdown with like a minute and a half left. And (laughs) then Mike Williams always believed, you know, going for two. This was pre-overtime in high school, but it went overtime in that game because of the playoffs. But uh, he went for two. And I'll never forget, he ran double tight, split backs, wing right, motion left, thinking they're going to go left. He ran quick pitch back to the right. And the guy, number three, got the ball, juked outside, cut in, went back out and scored, and they won 15-14. Yeah. And Etown missed a field goal in the last play of the game from like 45 yards. But th- I-, I watched him evolve as I watched him a few years later by the mid n- mid to late 90s. They were they'd come out and split backs, run the veer. Next play, they come out in empty. And sure. they were doing so much multiple stuff. And the one thing I learned at a clinic, you know, back to that second year, Frank Gay got a teaching job at he was our defensive coordinator my first year. And Frank got a co- teaching and coaching job at Redlands. So 
I needed to get a defensive coordinator. And Scott Feldman was a friend of mine. He was the head coach at Steel High and just resigned. So Scott Feldman joined our staff, later coached at Lancaster McCaskey as a head coach. Yep. Really, really good football coach. And we're at a clinic, the Glacier Clinic in, in Baltimore. And this college coach is talking about the importance of, even though you're going to be diverse offensively and have a versatile attack, you got to be very careful that you don't do too much and you get average or good at doing a lot of things, but you really have nothing you can hang your hat on. And we really took that to heart. And for every time you see a Mike Williams team that goes from split back there to, you know, player two later, they're a different formation. They're, you know, like I said, you know, they're going four verticals or doing this and you got to be very careful as a high school coach that you don't, do too much. Yeah. And it can really affect the quality and the consistency of your football team. And we took that to heart. Now saying that we did do a lot, but we always kept that in the back of our mind. Make sure we don't do too much that our team can't handle. And fortunately being at the places I've been as head coach, we've had a lot of skill and you want to put your kids in the best opportunity. Like we see it everywhere now, right? Sure. In the last decade or so, you're seeing it at the college and high school level like you've never seen it before. But back in those days, you just didn't see a lot of that. And, Chad, that gave us a big advantage in the mid-pen to be able – and that back to that Cumberland Valley game, that last game of the season, playing the, the eventual state champion, we were able to stay in that football game by running the football at times, but also using multiple formations, running a bubble to trips. Yeah for a big touchdown to our star receiver, Quincy Miller, that ran for like 65 yards of blocking downfield. You know, during when you run that stuff, running a lot of quick game that you just didn't see a lot of that sure. from, from most teams. Right. And especially from mid-pen division one, most teams just weren't doing that. And most teams didn't throw a hitch or a quick out or a slant the whole game. Right. And most of it was play action, you know, and sure. curls and flats and, you know, those kind of things. And we just – we were able to force teams, Chad, to to prepare for us in one week and go up against an offense that wasn't that was no huddle, that was multiple, that was something that those teams didn't see week in and week out. And I think that gave us a really good advantage. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So um then in ninety-four, ninety-three, no, ninety-four. 94, you guys uh, at McDevitt, you you had a pretty darn good team that year, too. You went to district finals in AAA, right? Or was that double? No, no, no. no. So let me, I'll, I'll continue. Yeah, go ahead. Go okay, ahead. so in, in 92, we lost to Cumberland Valley. Okay. We were down 35-27 in driving. I was, we lost 42-27. We, John Ritchie was impossible to stop. <laughs> he, sure. he went on a 70-yard touchdown run with a few minutes left and they beat us 42 27 but that gave us the confidence to realize we were going to be really good the next year as you allude to in the 93 season you may know pete susie who's the offensive coordinator at coatesville his son yeah. is the was the three-year quarterback pete was our quarterback and a great three-sport athlete and we encouraged our kids at mcdevitt hey play basketball you know yeah go out for baseball do they do those things we didn't have a track team at the time and and I just thought it goes back to what my dad would do, constantly encouraging kids to play multiple sports. And I'm a firm believer in that. Absolutely. In any event, Pete 
just had a great, great year as a senior, as a quarterback. We we had a sophomore, Rakai Nelson, who ended up was the best player I've coached in high school and a great receiver who went to Notre Dame. And we had Jordan Scott, who we ended up making our quarterback, who was a running back. But Jordan, our quarterback, Quincy Wadley, transferred to Harrisburg. He was our backup as a sophomore behind Pete and great basketball player at Temple. And so when Quincy transferred, we made Jordan a quarterback and it worked out, you know. Right. But in any event, that 93 year, we're 6-0 and after beating a great Chambersburg team in the last play of the game week, two weeks earlier. So we're going into the Harrisburg game 6-0. and Harrisburg had started the season on number one in the state. They had gotten upset by Cumberland Valley and Ascari Adams. So I remember that name, yeah. Yeah, we're up 7-0. Okay, first drive of the game. Now, what they did, they played us man-to-man. They had Sean Lee, a senior, covering Rakai, sophomore. And they had Hank Poteet, who has a Super Bowl ring as a defensive back at Patriots. Who's Hank is a junior. He's covering our senior, Kevin DeSanto, a really good receiver. He went to Georgetown. Good baseball player, too. He played baseball in college, too. So they played man free. We went right down the field and scored off that. And then late in the half, they scored to make it 7-6. to six. And it looked like we were going to be up 7-6 at halftime. They scored right before the half. And went for two and made it. We're down 14-7, chatted half. They scored a start to second half. Before you know it, final score, 48-7. to They put in a third-string running back, sophomore Kenny Watson, right? Yeah, right. He was an absolute star in college in the pro side. But third just, string, though. <laughs> third string. We couldn't stop them. And that's the first time they walked to our place after we had walked there the first two years. Anyway. That 48-7 to loss was just an eye-opener to us, but our kids battled back. We had a great rest of the season. Unfortunately, both our receivers had season-ending injuries, and we had beaten Cedar Cliff 25-0 the week before, but Rakai broke his foot, and we played our hearts out in the Cumberland Valley game in the last game. We lost right at the end. We had that game won for most of it and lost right at the end. I know Mike Williams was scouting, and Cantafio did the game with Gordon Blaine on the radio, and <laughs> – we played so well, Chad. I was so proud of our team, but we lost the game and had no playoffs, even though we went nine and two. Yeah, crazy. And couldn't get in the AAA playoffs. And we were so, so just disappointed. And here are these players that stayed with us for three years from when we started till then, and we didn't make a playoff game. And I felt for them. Yeah. And what happened was that – Year, you know, I started going to Cantafio's clinic and I ended up helping him with the clinic. What a great clinic in Lancaster at the Eden Resort Inn for 20 sure. plus years. And he let me get involved and help with the speakers. And my coaches would announce the speakers in the rooms and whatnot. And it was a lot of fun. And everybody just had a fabulous time during the clinic session at night, you know, having a grip. So in any event, George Curry came in to speak that year. And I had known Curry most of my life because him being friends with my dad. And we went to get something to eat right there at Garfield's attached to the hotel, the three of right. us. And I brought up my concern. I said, we can't, this is three years now. We can't get in the playoffs and we're playing all these tough teams. And, you know, we went eight and three and nine and two the last years. And Curry looked at me and said, four, you got to get in the playoffs. And the only way to have a really good chance of doing that, if you're a double A school, which we were size wise, we elected to play triple A. Get into the go double A. We yeah. didn't want to do that. We were so thrilled to be able to get a chance to maybe play a Mannheim 
Central, you know, or you know, some or get to eventually go to play Berwick or something in AAA. But I listened to what he said. Cantafio agreed, and I became the athletic director that next year. And we that was a two year cycle where you could switch, and we decided to go AA, and yeah. uh, went to the playoffs from that point on, and it worked out. But in that '94 season, the next year. We weren't as good. We had a lot of skill kids, but our line wasn't nearly as good. And we knew we were going to be really, really good the next year. But 94, Cumberland Valley ended up being the district champ. They beat us handily at Cumberland Valley. Chambersburg, the best team in their school's history. Tony Cleary was a senior. They ended up beating us. It was 14-7.5 in our place. They beat us 35-7. to Now we have two losses. And our team was a little bit, didn't handle the adversity well. We had a few kids that just had a bad attitude. Yeah. Per se. One kid threw his helmet during the, you know, when we were getting beaten. And we had to sit down, have some meetings with those kids. We had a meeting with our whole team then because we got to go to Harrisburg the next week. We just got beat with a really good team, 48 to 7 the week, the year before. And now we're going to Harrisburg. It's their homecoming, Chad. We lost 65 18, 19 to 7, and 48 to 7. Right. And we're Harrisburg is as good as they were the year before. And we're not. Yeah. And we decided we got a new motto for our program. And I'm not a big believer in all these things, but we did do this. We put on gold paper, we printed out MCD football, discipline, attitude, teamwork. And we really focused on those three words the whole week. But we got to play Harrisburg, right? And right. those words yeah. aren't going to do anything. Yeah, right. So even though they were in every player's locker, in our varsity locker room and on the wall and whatnot, we sat down at our Sunday coaches meeting. And we're trying to regroup our team as a coaching staff, figuring out how we're going to handle this when they come in to meet for the, you know, watch the film and whatnot. And we decided from an X and O standpoint, Harrisburg has a new coach in from out of town, Tom Sylvanic. He's running the run and shoot, basically double slot. Yeah. Loose double slot or trips open or motion to one or the other with one back. Their one back's Hag Poteet, a senior. Right. Quincy Wadley's their quarterback. Their slot is junior Kenny Watson, who's out of this world good. So we decided. I remember way back when Penn State and Miami played in the Fiesta Bowl for the national title. Penn State devised a scheme that would be rush three and drop eight into zone coverage, and do not give up the big play. Sure. Make the team drive the distance on you. And every once in a while, we may rush four or five, but rarely. So I, I say we as in Penn State. So I just saw Ray Isom last night at the Harrisburg Central Office. Game. Uh, yeah. He's the book for Harrisburg. He was the free safety for – he was the same year as I was. Yeah. And we played against each other in the first ever district playoff game. And also we're able to play in the big 33 game together. And he was Penn state's free safety and, yeah. and had a great game and turned the tide when he hit Michael Irvin on a post in the first quarter that caused the fumble. And in any event, here's what we decided to do. And Scott Feldman and I were on the same page as were other coaches. And we told our team, we are going to rush three and drop eight in the coverage all the time, except for maybe five to ten plays during the game, maybe a few more, but we're, we're going to rush seven in an all-out blitz 
We're going to disguise it as best we can, and we're going to cover man-to-man on their four receivers. And we got to sack Quincy Wadley a few times, and we got to press him. But it all we told our guys, do not give up the big play. Sure. And offensively, it's unique, Chad. We were the most diverse team in our conference. We used the most formations. We threw the ball the most. But when we played Harrisburg, we were not going to out-athlete Harrisburg. It was the one team we were not going to do that to. And their DNs are so good. That year they had Quincy Brandon, who I saw last night in the game as well, phenomenal receiver in DN, and Marcella Sumter. They were the two defensive ends, all-conference first team. And we're like, we got to go against Harrisburg. We got to start going double tight, double tight, double flanker, a lot of one back. If we go empty, we're going to go double tight empty. And most of the time, we're not going to release our tight ends on the pass route. Yeah. Because we got to max protect, and we cannot turn the ball over. And most importantly, if we do release a tight end, it's going to be hit, 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 release in the flat or something of that nature. But under no circumstance are we going to line up with those DNs on our tackles with no tight ends and having that short corner because we're going to get annihilated. Right. Even though we had a very athletic, skilled quarterback. So that's what we did the whole game. We didn't run one play the whole game, Chad, without two tight ends in the game. And we had one more advantage. They had a bad long snapper. Their punting game was slow. We told our kids we must block three punts to change three. the field. Yes. That's quite, a, that's quite a goal. That's quite a goal. Is it? Well, guess what? We blocked two and won the punter. Didn't even punt it because he knew it was going to get blocked. Yeah. Changed the whole field position game. In any event – we went up 7 nothing, and they hit one long pass down the middle that made it 7-7 like a seemed for like 60, 70 yards. We get the ball one last possession. We throw the ball in a counter gap boot and let it fly right before Jordan got hammered. He threw it. Rakai went up over three guys as a junior receiver and made it except he had a game out of just an absolute incredible football game. Yeah. Did Jordan Rakai play? Anyway, we kicked the field goal in the last play of the game. And we sort of got the monkey off our back with, with Harrisburg. We still had not beaten Cumberland Valley yet, though. But we were able to beat Harrisburg for the first time. And I'll tell you what, it, it, it gave us a sense of that we could compete with anybody because we were so impressed with those Harrisburg, the program and their players and the way they played hard. And especially against McDevitt, they brought their best. And I had a good relationship with some of their coaches and players and had a lot of respect for them. And that game, winning 10 to 7, sort of gave us the impetus to be able to take it to the next level, if you will. Yeah. And the next year in 95, we were able to do that. And our toughest games were against Cumberland Valley and Harrisburg, and we were fortunate to win them both. And both in tight games, especially the Harrisburg game, we had a drive 80, the last drive of the game, because we were up 7 nothing most of the game. It was a, a sloppy field, and it had rained that morning on a grass field at our place, and both teams were limited a little bit, but it was a, a heck of a low-scoring football game, put it that yeah. way. And we ended up driving the 80 yards, and we had a fourth and nine we had to convert, which we Jordan hit Rakai for a nine-and-a-half-yard gain, a play we drew up on the field – and they were playing man-free, but we went empty. They went straight man, and Kenny Watson was covering Rakai. They were two good buddies, and we hit him for a nine-and-a-half-yard gain, and five plays later, we're in the end zone and pulled it out 12-7 to and went on to go undefeated and win the title. And it was a, a heck of a year, and 
our fifth year there, we sort of accomplished some of our goals, yeah. you know, our massive goal of winning the mid pen, winning the district title, and obviously winning the state title. And to do that, Chad, it took a lot of people being on the same page, as you sure. well know. And I, I'm forever indebted to our assistant coaches who put so much time and effort in making very, very little money and being loyal to the program, to me, to our school and to the kids and to our kids for working so incredibly hard and believing in the system and all the kids before that, who never got to that pinnacle that laid the foundation, you know, yeah, and absolutely to them too. And it was, it, uh, it was just an ex incredible experience. The, um, so the 94 team, I, I'd be remiss if I didn't mention this, but you went to district finals against Cacalico in 94 prior to that year and it's really interesting because you're talking about being multiple as teams are these days or whatever calico is not that and wasn't that calico is still not that that's right but, <laughs> but um in in 94 um you had a district title game against calico district title i think it was if i recall correct was it at elko yep elko high school yeah elko high school i was at that game because my brother was a uh, junior running back, right? Yeah. And, and linebacker. Yeah. And um, I want to tell you something that you might not know about that game. So uh, you were a signaler, like you got plays in, you signaled a lot. Right. correct? Right. Yeah. So uh, at some point in that game, um, you were trying to signal a reverse to Rakai Nelson. And I think, you know, again, this is secondhand, but um, the, either, you know, your quarterback, Scott, or whomever wasn't either understanding your signal or, um, you know, they were confused, couldn't see you, whatever. And you, I think you got pissed and, and said reverse. And the corner on that side heard you. And that's the side you were running it to. And How about just, that? Yeah, he just sat there and, <laughs> and made the play on Rakai Nelson, which, by the way, athletically, it was a heck of a play by that corner because athletically, it was not much of a comparison. But Sure. You know, the thing The thing I – believe it or not, that was a great win for Cocalico and, and obviously their coach, uh, Phil Kaufman and his yeah, staff. My high school coach. Okay, there you go. Yeah, they did a great job with doing what they do and doing it well, as we, as you were saying. But you know, I, I learned a lot from that game, as did a lot, our whole program. And sure, they and I learned it really a lot better after I heard Coach Kaufman speak the following year at a clinic. And he <laughs> brought up, he watched us on film and saw how athletic we were and whatnot, and told his team that they can win the game. He handed out a rope that was. Three and one third, yeah, uh, yards long, and gave every kid a rope and say, "This is all we have to get on every down, and then we'll be moving those chains and and we're going to be fine." And the other thing that in that game, you know, we weren't up front near what we were the year before, or the year after, and they were able to just run their system. And run it very well and confidently and execute at such a high level, even though the score was low scoring. Sure. But that last drive, we're up 14-7, and they believed in themselves, took it the whole way down the field, and 
And in in their and when they scored, they decided to do what we said Mike Williams does a lot and just line up and go for two. And that veer is tough to stop. And when they would not run the veer, they you know they would run a trap here there as you notice that you yeah. played for. But then the other thing that was they'd have that flanker out there at any time they could run that veer pass and let that ball fly. So you had to at least you had to at least respect the fact that they could go deep. Kept on honest. Yep, and kept you honest, no doubt. And they ran that two-point conversion to Veer and got in, and we took the ball down the field and missed a field goal. Yeah. And that was the same year we kicked the field goal against Harrisburg. So we had it was a longer field goal, but we had confidence that our linebacker and tight end Mike Thornton could maybe make it. And, you know, as disappointed as we were losing that game 15-14, to 14, we really, really, it really motivated us to be, to have a phenomenal work ethic the next year and take nothing for granted and get us to where we were the following year to be able to have the success we had. It was a one of those lessons that you don't want to go through to lose a game to get it, but it took that. Yeah, but you certainly, you certainly learn more from from losing than you do winning a lot of times. No doubt. No you doubt. Know, I, I just had that conversation with some of our staff members this week. You know, we lost to our arch rival 7-6 this year, Perkiuma Valley. And, uh, you know, there's three plays and anytime you lose, right. Of course, those three plays become so much bigger, but they made some mistakes too, you know? And I'm like, guys, we're not going to change anything just because we didn't execute certain plays. You know, we sure. went, for, we went for two at the end of the game and just, it was, you know, we practiced and play every week in the summer. This is our two point play. And we just, we whiffed, you know? So, yeah. yeah. Uh, but we can't change, you know, we can adjust and, but we're not going to make wholesale changes just because of that game, you know? Um, but you can learn so much more from taking your medicine a little bit and, and. Absolutely. Out, so Chad, let me ask you this. When you yeah, were, you coached with Cantafio at Wilson. Correct. When Cantafio moved on and coach Dom's got the job, you stayed there with him, I believe. Right. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So. I, I've always wondered what two different guys, two different coaches, one's more of an offensive guy, one's more of a defensive guy. Yeah. What, and I, I, you know, watching your teams play over time and seeing different things about your teams and you like to run at a very fast pace some of the time and do different yeah. things uh, and get as many plays as possible and, and be multiple and this stuff. How much of an influence and what specific ways did those two coaches influence you? Well, I would say, you know, the the one misnomer about Jim, and I was I actually had dinner with uh, Jeff Brubaker and his wife, who was a longtime offensive line coach at Wilson, had dinner with them last night. We actually kind of came up. You know, I, one thing, you know, Doug was – when when Doug took over, Doug wanted to go back to the, the Slemmer and Gursky way of doing things. Uh, which obviously there was a lot of success, so it wasn't wrong. But, you know, football had changed a little bit, and he wanted to just run off tackle, run off tackle. And I, I remember when I sat down with Doug, I said, listen, you know, here's the thing. When Jim was there, Jim was there for seven years. As much as you think Jim, you know, throw, lines up and throws the ball over the field, I think if I'm correct, um, Wilson – Wilson's running back was the um, overall rushing leader in the LL league, not just the section, the LL league uh, four of seven years. It might've been three. It was either three or four of the seven years that Jim was there. 
And I said, you got to remember, like, just because you're not running the ball every play uh, doesn't mean that you're not committed to running the ball. You know, you might you might end up, you know, now we had some pretty good running backs. Pete Gilmore wasn't bad, and you know, but but, um, you know, you know, we can extend our we can extend our average run by spreading people out, you know, and instead of having to run the ball two times to get seven yards, maybe we ran one time to get seven yards because we spread guys out and we're making them be honest. But when Doug took over, it was a little, you know, it was a little bit of an adjustment. And uh, it was one of those things, you know, fortunately, like you said, with assistants that also believed in, in, in some of the things that, you know, I learned and believed from Jim uh, Jeff Brubaker, who's an offensive line coach who loves running the ball, but, you know, he understood, you know, we can't just run into a brick wall. We've got to, you know, take what's there. And uh, Jeremy Palm was the the quarterback's coach at the time, and I was coaching wide receivers, but um, it was an adjustment. You know, we had Doug's first year, we lost the opening game to Governor Mifflin um, and then ended up running the table and then losing to Governor Mifflin in the playoffs got got really blown out. Um, you know, but I think so 20, you know, we were we were we were trying to emphasize balance. And 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 Doug was not wrong on some of the things that you know he believed in, obviously, but we just tried to emphasize and we had to do it what didn't take the first time. We had to keep we had to keep reinforcing it. But, you know, we had to emphasize with him, like, we're going to be better if we're balanced. And by the way, you know, I've always you brought up that only four teams made the playoffs. And, you know, this is me on a soapbox a little bit. But um, in 2017, in 2017 at Wilson, we lost our starting quarterback for three games and lost two of three of them. And had we had it been the old playoff system, we wouldn't have made it. We were seven and three you know, at the season's end. And then we went in, went all the way to Altoona, um, beat Altoona, I believe. I don't know, remember exactly. I'm not like you. I don't remember the scores exactly, but I think it was seven to six. And then we ended up coming back and played Harrisburg uh, at Harrisburg. And uh, unfortunately, we missed five field goals and lost the game. Um you know, by, I mean, each one of those field goals would have won the game. Um, but uh, we wouldn't have even made the playoffs. And and we felt, you know, we could compete with anybody that year. Sure. Um, but yeah, I mean, we wouldn't have made playoffs. And that's, that's the thing that I, you know, there's a lot of people that, you know, in district one, 16 teams make the playoffs and there's 34, six, eight teams right now, somewhere in that range. And, you know, a lot of teams, a lot of times people look at playoff scores and use that as an example. Well, that team didn't even belong in the playoffs. And I always say, you know, that's not, that's not, that's not it. Like in playoffs, sometimes things end up lopsided because you might be down two scores and now you got to take some chances late in the game and that doesn't go your way. And right. And then the, the score becomes a little more lopsided, but um, yeah, I, you know, that always stood out to me because, you know, we lost our quarterback and wouldn't have even made playoffs in the old, old system. And, and sure. we were as good as, any, I mean, we should have beaten Harrisburg. We missed five field goals. So, um, yeah, you know, I think it's, you know, I, like you were saying, having the opportunity to learn 
uh, under, under other good coaches. And by the way, good assistants. Like when I got to Wilson, there were, I think four assistants on staff, Bernie stopped by, um, Bill Morgan, um, Doug, uh, there, there were assistants there that were over 25 years as being assistant at Wilson all under Jim's staff. And I thought, why do these guys not want to, you know, I had a goal of, you know, interviewing and trying to be a head coach and these guys weren't. And when I got to Wilson, I started to understand that a little bit, but learned a lot, learned a lot from those guys, just, you know, sure. being around them. Um, and then had, you know, obviously the opportunity to coach for Jim and coach for Doug and, um, you know, all kinds of personalities and all kinds of philosophies. And, and you just try to take what you can from each of those things. And I think, you know, I didn't grow up on the sidelines like like you did, but, you know, just trying to take some of that stuff in and is, is great. And then, by the way, like you said, talking to other coaches, you know, I tried to talk to guys like Mike Williams. I tried to talk to guys like Jim and, you know, before he was at Wilson. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And, you know, when, yeah. when Jim went to Wilson, he and I were already obviously very close friends. And I remember I was the coach at Harrisburg then. So we played. Our home games were Saturday afternoon, which was great because I could go see other games. Yeah, right. And this big Mannheim, Mannheim Central, Wilson game. Wilson had been moved down to the to based on enrollment solely to, to the two. second level section. So yeah, this was for the section two title. And at Wilson, you and I was. Team? Oh yeah, right the on smoke, Wilson sideline. Sure, and I remember Wilson giving peak. They went double. You guys went double. Were you on the staff then? Yeah. Yeah, you went double tight a lot, and that Pete Gilmore just carried the ball most of the time, and Mannheim struggled. I remember Mannheim ran a jet sweep the first play, back when the quarterback was under center jet sweep. Yeah, sure. And you guys engulfed the the, the running back, ball carrier, and you guys handled – they came back at the end. The game was already out of hand. They came back and scored a couple of – but it was – pretty much a blowout. And I was so impressed, but I'm thinking here's Cantafio, the guy that likes to well, do right. all this versatile stuff, but not that day. Well, and, and he realized that's... when you have a guy like Gilmore in the lineup front that could do what they do, we're better off running the ball and running play action occasionally, et cetera. Well, that's the thing too, uh, where, what you asked about Jim and I would say this about Jim and I would say this about Doug too, you know, you got to do what you can do to win the game. And Jim was very willing to do that. I mean, we played at uh, Reading, Chad Henney's freshman year, and uh, I mean, Reading was loaded. Reading was absolutely loaded, um, and we won that game by going into what Jim calls Marine at the end. You know, I was a wide receivers coach, and and I'm on a headset like, stay in it. We don't need to stay in it. That we were going. You know, we were running with. Uh, we had I backfield, and we had no wide receivers on the field. And brought in an extra lineman and double tight. And uh, we just kept running the ball either off tackle or ISO and kept the ball away from Redding and, and just pounded, you know. So you got to be willing to do, you got to figure out, first of all, what your team is good at or could be good at. And then, you know, in certain games, you know, I think Pete Gilmore in that Mannheim Central game had 40, 40 carries and 300 yeah. yards rushing. And, uh, you know, the next week, we would come out and throw 20 times. So, you know, you know later that, of, later that year in the spring, I came to, went to visit you guys at Wilson and Cantafio, you guys were on the practice field behind the visiting bleachers. And I'm watching and I'm like, Chad, Hing, I think was going to be a sophomore. And 
you guys are in shotgun. Yeah. Like a lot. Just there were no pads on or anything. You guys were yeah. and I, I remember your linemen came down from doing like they were separate. They were come down. I swear you had like 20 linemen. I never have seen a group of lo- like that much depth with a line. But anyway, I said to Cantafrio in between plays or whatever he's doing, I said, you guys are in shotgun a lot. And then once again, you know, I saw yeah. growing up, Roger Stallback would be in shotgun for the Cowboys on third and longer. So, you know, you'd see it occasionally sure. different teams. Well, you know, right. that was the start of it. And then you see, but he, he looked at me and said, we plan on being in shotgun almost every play. And I just said, wait, what are you talking about? <laughs> you know, and then it's amazing, isn't it? Here we yeah, are sure. two decades later. And if you see a quarterback under center from a lot of teams in high school, it's it can be a rarity. Yeah. You know, it's it's amazing how far it's come. But I want to tell you, you know, I mentioned this a little bit, but Jim, I would just use him as a he was always like up to speed with the newest, the latest, the greatest. And he have a, had a great, as you know, coaching with him, a great understanding of what teams do and why they do it and what their goal is of why are they running this play to attack in this certain formation, whatever. And a lot of this multiple stuff. So I remember way back in 94, he said, Hey, you want to go to Miami with me? Yeah. Cause they're running a one back and no backs. I said, sure. So that was my first time to the university of Miami for spring ball. And we, Jim and I had gone to Penn state so many times and the Penn state coaches under Paterno treated us great. And I, that's my favorite team. And I, I love, I'm, I'm respectful of Penn state and the program they ran, but we're trying to do things, you know, a little bit more diverse, whatever. And I would often go there and watch film with Drew Brees, you know, get the tape of drill, put it in and watch Purdue's offense Sure, and still get a lot of things that Penn state did on both sides of the ball that were, could be influential, but nonetheless, then when Chad was at Michigan, Jim said, Hey, let's go to, let's go to Michigan for their spring ball and stuff. And you know, it, he always kept up to date as I tried to do too with, with what teams are doing and, yeah. you know, both at high school and college level. And we got to see a lot of that at his clinic. Cause he would bring in a lot of college coaches and a lot of high, good high school coaches. Oh Yeah. Yeah. And it, it, having people like that to run things off of, to ask questions to, to see how they do it. Why are you doing that? And nowadays, you know, this is before all the, going to all the video, the YouTube videos and the things. Nowadays, coaches have so many things right at their fingertips, you know, right. to be able to learn a lot more in a quicker fashion. Yeah, that's a good point. That's a good point. You don't necessarily have to go. I mean, it's always nice to see teams in spring practice live, but you don't necessarily have to do that anymore. It's at your fingertips, you know, on your computer. Absolutely. And now yeah. it's, it's just it's sort of interesting how you're just seeing – so, you know, so many teams, you, you, I, it, it makes me almost stutter talking to you because I try to get it out. I'm like, it's first and goal from the two-yard line. You need a touchdown to win, and you're in shotgun. Yeah. And it can sometimes help. Sometimes it can go back to haunt you, you know, because yeah, the defense is putting their ears back and filling gaps and coming hard and really have nothing to lose at that point. And I just saw it in a, in a game early in the year, and Mark Evans, I, I think, has done a – did a great job at Elko. He was ended up being the big 33 head coach. I was so impressed with him that week. And I've known him for a long time. And watching what he's done at Mannheim Township, it's just exceptional. Yeah. And even a couple of the seasons, he ended up losing a tight game to Central Dolphin in overtime after they beat him earlier in the year. They beat CD. 
that team could have gone for. He, he's had some great football teams. And same with and, this past year against Harrisburg. Beat him earlier. Absolutely. And yeah, and we did. I did that game on TV at the district final, and Harrisburg was playing at a high level. But just to see what Evans has done at a place like that, you know, and the progress they've made from being very, they're very multiple, as you know, as you sure. are. And it's just, it's neat to see. And it, now even a Cumberland Valley, which, as I told you, with my dad running a lot of double tight for years, then Tim Rimple bringing the wing key to McDevitt, or excuse me, from McDevitt to Cumberland Valley. And then Mike Whitehead, who coached with me and played for my dad and took over after Rimple retired and continued to run the wing key. And now they've gone full circle. And now you have a, another really good coach, Josh Oswald, who played at Cumberland Valley and is now, as you guys play then, you know, being yeah. multiple. Yeah. And I always wonder what the best thing to do is, you know, because now it's you got teams like Cumberland Valley being shotgun multiple and they're very well coached. They do a good job of it. But most years, I don't think they're going to get the talent athletically of a Central Off and a Harrisburg. Right. A state college, a CD East. It's going to be interesting to see as time evolves, Chad, whether some teams are going to go back and maybe and, be yeah. more under center. Yeah. You know, or that kind of thing. Yeah. Well, again, speaking, I was at the Cacalico Exeter game and it was kind of that vibe. Uh, was it? Yeah. I mean, you know, Cacalico's still doing the same thing. And their first drive was eight, eight minutes, took eight minutes off the clock, scored, and Exeter's um, not under center. You know, they have an unbelievable tight end, um, but they just couldn't, they just couldn't overcome it. It was interesting because if you looked at, even the captains going out, there was a significant size difference between the Exeter players and the Cacalico players. Sure. Okay. So there's two things we want to maybe wrap this up, but there's two questions I got to ask you. And I don't even know if you remember uh, this, but I'm going to bring it up. So one of the first times I ever uh, met you or hung out, you know, in the same room or whatever, we were at one of uh, Contafio's clinics in Lancaster and uh, you, and I don't even remember who it was, but you, uh, the two things happened that night. One, I went to grab a beverage and uh, I accidentally uh, cut in line in front of Frank Beamer. <laughs> so, <laughs> so that was that was the first thing I remember from that night. But uh, the second thing, I think it was the same year, you got into a heated discussion over what jerseys Miami was wearing in a certain uh, bowl game. <laughs> Do you remember this? No. You don't? No. Well, you I don't know who I would forget who you were arguing with, but uh you were you were you were pretty fired up about it that you were you were insistent that you were right. Um and all of a sudden I remember you disappeared, you know, didn't think anything of it, thought maybe you know you went to the bathroom or whatever. Well, you came back like five minutes later from from your hotel room and you had the jersey on. <laughs> and i want here's what i so do you remember now you still don't remember yeah, yeah, yeah. well i was wondering if that was a setup like you knew you had the jersey in no your no i wasn't trying to i here, this is crazy <laughs> can't have you even commented to me on this every time you'll think this is funny so i was so excited in eighth grade for the first time to be able to put on a cumberland valley football jersey as my dad's ball boy but i would always wear the opposite number 13 yeah so the opposite color, the managers wear the opposite color of the varsity. Sure, sure. So 
And I always was like a into uniforms, especially college uniforms. So I was so excited to create my first uniform at McDevitt. And we were going to use the, the pro inserts down the side, the tight yeah. sleeves and everything that colleges had, but high schools didn't get to that point usually yet. Sure. The tight pants with the logo on the front side, the whole bit. Yeah. I actually changed the McDevitt colors, believe it or not. They always were royal blue and gold. Oh, really? I didn't know that. Yeah, yeah. So the athletic director said, I can't, and the principal said, you can't buy uniforms. We're not getting uniforms for you till the next year. Well, I got her, I started a little bit of a fundraising thing with the booster club to get weights and whatnot. And the head of that said, go ahead and get, get the uniforms. So I got navy blue <laughs> and gold from Russell. Make a long story short, um, at home and I had been introduced to sportsmen's that previous year in Johnstown, the hiders and hiders, yeah. people that don't know they're a big wholesaler and usually come down the lowest price. Cause they sell in bulk and make, they, they treat you well. And Greg Hyder, one of the brothers was at my house and uh, my grandmother, I had moved her in. I was living in my parents' house. My sister was in college at Towson and my grandma made dinner for Greg and me and, and her and we're, I'm setting up these uniforms and, Greg would do Penn State's uniforms and Pitt's uniforms through sure. Russell back then. This is before the Nike deal and all that stuff. So I I said, Greg, I want to do something different for the home and away. Everybody has the same home and away. Right. I want to put the TV numbers. I'm going to put the numbers on the side, on the sleeves for the white ones and for the navy ones on the top. But on the side, I want to have that shiny material just on the top shoulder. On the side, I want the mesh <laughs> like the regular jersey. He said, Russell doesn't make that. I said, yes, they do. George Durant wore it in a bowl <laughs> yeah, game. Right. <laughs> he gets on the phone, this guy named John Wachtel, who was the head of the college division for Russell. I finally get on the phone myself. And back then, the phone didn't have a speakerphone or anything. So he finally gave me the phone. I said, John, thank you so much for taking the time. I know we're just a high school team in Pennsylvania. And I said, I'm telling you, I watched the game. And I know that Georgia... He goes, hold on. He went back to it. Back then it was filing cabinet in 91. He went back to his filing cabinet. He pulls out, comes back five minutes later and says, you're right for the bowl game. Georgia wore (laughs) the shiny just on the top of the shoulders. The mesh is on the side, just like the regular part of the jersey. He said, we don't make that for high schools, but I'm going to tell you what I'm going to do. I'm going to make it for you. That's what he (laughs) said. We're going to make it for you. I said, John, thank you very much. So yep, those first uniforms were white, white jerseys with navy blue numbers and gold trim. And we put the my buddy did an MCD logo for the first time, the one they use now. And we put it on the pants, the gold pants, and got away with wearing navy blue and gold those first few years. And when I was the AD, we got them for the boys' basketball team, the navy blue unis. And eventually now, as you know, the whole school's yeah, navy sure. blue and gold years later. But yeah, that was pretty cool. But I've yeah. always loved uniforms. And my big adage, Chad, is less is more. I don't like all the fancy piping and different colors, this and that. I prefer to keep it a little bit more plain. But, yeah, uniforms have always been a passion of mine. <laughs> yeah, it's and you know what? I have a guy on my staff who's the same way. So that's nice to have because I don't have to worry about any of that stuff. There you go. We change our helmet color every year. I don't like you know it. what I thought you were going to say? What? I thought you were going to say at the clinic how – I would deal blackjack at night with my own money. Oh, and yeah, yeah, right. <laughs> and Tafio being the super competitor that he is, when I would 
bust over 21 and have to pay everybody the chips out. He would be high-fiving people, going nuts, <laughs> and him winning money, and boom, boom, boom. And the gambling yeah, gods got Jim Cantafio back because that night I lost a couple hundred dollars. <laughs> but that was the, that's the risk I take because I'm dealing. Right. And for the next night, I don't, I don't, when the clinic was part was finished the next day, I had to run to the bank quick and the ATM <laughs> and get a few more hundred dollars out because I'm the bank. I got to supply right. this money in case I lose again. But the odds are a little bit in my favor with Blackjack being the dealer. Sure. The next night, I'm telling you, I got cards. If I had 15, I'd get a five or a six and have 20. I had those guys either busting or me beating them or I'd deal myself black chat. It was just total luck of the draw. But nonetheless, let's just say this. The second night, Jim Cantafio went to his – he always got that hotel room right by the, the closest one to the right. – to the, where the, you know, the, the rooms were that we would yeah. hang out and stuff. That, and he ended up going to bed. A little bit early that night, upset because his, his cash ran dry. He lost all his chips and they ran dry. And it, it always say it because he's always been a little bit cocky and he oh, likes yeah. playing on the edge and being that way, you know. And I don't I don't really like that, but I like to tease him about it and he teases me. But that second night, he had to go get his piggy bank out of his room. <laughs> all right. So let's close this down with one last thing. So I'm sitting at home one time and I knew some of these stories already and I forget which, you know, it's bowl season. I'm watching a game and I'm, and I'm, they're panning the sideline and I'm like, Holy who I know that guy. So I wait, you know, again, they pan the sideline maybe 10 minutes later. And I'm like, that's four Chapman standing on the sideline. And I don't, I, I forget. I don't even remember what bowl game it was. But I, you know, you had talked about this. How many games have you snuck on the sideline, and what games were they? Yeah, I've done you, it for a handful, the- handful of games. I'll, <laughs> I'll tell you where this started. Make us quick. But my dad and I went to the pit game in '78. Okay. I was in eighth grade. Penn State was number one in the country. It was the Pitt and Penn State back in the day. For younger people that are watching this, Pitt and Penn State would always play at the end, right a day after Thanksgiving usually. And it was a huge rivalry and Penn state wins. They go to the, they're going to play in the national title sugar bowl. What ended up being against Alabama, but Pitt had this really good defense led by defensive end, Hugh green, who was an underclassman, but very tough. So very close game, low scoring, cold right after pregame, you could go down back then and you could stand right outside of the visiting team's locker room. I mean, right there with nothing sure. in the middle in between it. So here come the pit players off the from pregame into the locker room and they're walking towards me and I'm standing by the door. So I thought I'm just going to grab the door and open it up. <laughs> so I opened the, one of the two doors of the locker room and it's an old school locker room, nothing fancy. I had been it since then. And anyway, the players are coming in. The last guy is coach Jackie Sherrill with two state troopers. And the one state trooper looks at me and says, are you coming in or staying out? <laughs> I said, oh, I'm staying out. And they went in and shut the door. And my dad says, no, don't ever do that. <laughs> Go in. I said, well, dad, I don't think it doesn't matter. Just act like you belong. <laughs> so Penn State actually scored on a fourth and goal down by the student section, a toss to Mike Gooman on fourth and short. Instead of kicking the field goal to tie the game, 
Paterno called timeout, decided to go for it, and they won the game, I think 14-10. But anyway, after that, I said to myself, if you ever get in that situation again, just act like you belong. Right. So sure enough, I went to Stan Gelballs, who was the quarterback before me at Cumber Valley. He was the head, starting quarterback at Maryland. It was his senior year. Frank Reich had just re, uh, graduated. Boomer had graduated the year before that. So they had three pro quarterbacks on their team at once. Yeah. Anyway, they're playing Virginia at home, last home game of the year. And I thought, what the heck? I was out where Maryland comes out of their locker room, and I thought, Gelbo had got me a ticket, and which he would do from time to time. I'd go to see as many games as I could when I wasn't playing myself. And uh, I'm at this game. Our season was over at Shippensburg. I'm late in the year, and I, I thought, you know what? I'm going to run out with this team. <laughs> so I just got behind a guy that had the big Maryland flag, the huge flag, the Maryland flag, and I just <laughs> ran out behind him and watched the game from the Maryland sideline. <laughs> and one of their defensive backs was hurt and wasn't dressed. And he had worked my dad's football camp. Delbaugh had brought him along, brought him along. So I knew him. I stood by him and just watched the game there, but that was on TV. I didn't know at the time, but me running out, leading the Maryland team out. <laughs> so later that year, I played basketball at ship too. And it was, I didn't go to ship right away. I went to Naval Academy prep school and played quarterback. So then I coached with my dad. So I was a, a year and a half, Played spring football and practice with the basketball team. So this is my second semester, but my freshman year of football and basketball. Yeah. So I went to our coach, Coach Goodling, our basketball coach, and I said, hey, coach, in a couple of weeks, like in a week or two, we're leaving for Christmas. What's our schedule look like? Because the dorms are closing down. What are we going to do? You know, and, you know, as a naive freshman, not having any idea. And yeah, started basketball late because football season ran into basketball. And he said, oh, we're playing a team in Florida. January 3rd. I said, when are we going down there? He said, we're going a couple days after Christmas. I said, well, where's this game in Florida? He told me where. I said, we're only like an hour, hour and a half from Miami. Let's go to the Orange Bowl. <laughs> he said, we can't get tickets to that. I called an old neighbor who lived down there. My, my buddy's dad, Mr. Bruce, who just passed away two years ago at 81. Great guy. Loved sports. And he actually, he, he, they moved to Council Rock from Cumberland Valley School District. They moved to Council Rock. Then they yeah. moved out to Florida years later. So um, I got on the phone with Mr. Bruce from my basket, college basketball coach's office. I said, <laughs> Mr. Bruce, I told him the whole scoop. I said, could you be able to get us Orange Bowl tickets? Penn State, number one, undefeated against Oklahoma, number two, national championship. He said, how many do you need? <laughs> so I ended up putting, he said, put your coach on. So they started talking. Every day I'd come to practice, Chad, for like the next two weeks, Coach Goodling would say, I talked to Mr. Bruce today. We got this lined up. We got that. Heath, who's my age, Mr. Bruce's son, Heath worked at the Deerfield Beach Howard Johnson's. They lived in Coral Springs, right by Deerfield Beach, by Boca Raton. So we got rooms, four people in a room, two big beds. We all just, two people in a bed, you know, back in the day, you don't care. And Coach Goodling got his own room. All the rest of us, we split rooms, four people each. It was 32. This hotel, Howard Johnson, it's nothing fancy, but it's on the beach. Right. Eight, $8 a person, $32 <laughs> a night. Keith got us this great rate because of a bad, but I don't know how he did it. Anyway, we practiced on this outdoor court. That was nice. And we go to the Orange Bowl. 
But I had an Oklahoma jersey. I had been to the Orange Bowl the year before with Mr. Brewis invited me there. And I told you my dad was in Johns Hopkins. I called my dad one day and Mr. Brewis, my dad says, hold on, somebody wants to talk to you. And it was Mr. Brewis who was in there for business in Baltimore, visiting my dad who was sick with cancer in the hospital. Right. So the next month, Mr. Brewis had me come down to Florida. Well, Keith and I went to the Orange Bowl. It was my first time in the Orange Bowl. And then we went to see Dan Marino and the Dolphins in the playoffs the year the Dolphins went to the Super Bowl against the 49ers. Anyway, so I was in the Orange Bowl a couple of times and I checked things out and I realized I'm going to do this plan. So I ordered from the bookstore in Oklahoma an Oklahoma jersey, pre-internet. <laughs> it was tougher to do, but I got this number 14 jersey. The day of the game, my basketball teammates, I told them, I said, we got to get there early. Everybody make sure you're ready to leave by such and such. We're going to get there very early. They go, where are our seats? I said, our seats are probably in the upper deck because Mr. Brewis got us tickets. Sure. I said, I'm not sitting with you guys. So what are you doing? I said, I'm going to be on the Oklahoma sideline. I was here last year for that. I know what to do. And they thought I was crazy. Anyway, I go in the stadium. I was going to plan a different plan, but this was easier. I didn't realize this was going to happen, but it ended up, I caught an audible. There were players who were in jeans and their red jerseys that were Oklahoma game jerseys that were red shirted, injured, whatever. And they were going up from the sidelines to the bleachers to talk to their families an hour and 15 minutes before the game. And there was a guy at a gate, there's a little orange fence that was between, that was just, it was not high. It would just separate the field from the bleachers. And there was a security guy at the little gate. And he was looking at these players and letting them on and off based on their jersey. Well, I have a jersey. Right. So my name wasn't on the back. (laughs) But, and the orange bowl patches weren't up here. But aside from that, it was similar. They had the like open hole, porthole mesh. I had a tighter mesh jersey, but you couldn't tell if you didn't run into jerseys. The old security guy looked at me and went like, go ahead, open the gate. I went (laughs) on to the sidelines. I went back by the locker room. (laughs) <laughs> I spent the whole time back there acting like I the, I used my dad's adage, act like you know what you're doing. <laughs> so I'm pregame was over. Players are coming up. There's a TV monitor. I'm watching the TV monitor of the Rose Bowl, which was on NBC, just like the Orange Bowl was about to be on. And the coaches were standing in a small open room behind me outside the locker room. And I looked one time over my left shoulder and I thought, don't look again. Just look straight ahead. Watch the TV of the Rose Bowl. Act like you belong here, even though you don't. And nobody will say anything to you. (laughs) That's what I did. About two, three minutes later, I felt this tap on my left shoulder. I look over my left shoulder. It's head coach Barry Switzer. (laughs) He's going to say, son, what are you doing, Dan? He looked right at me and said, how's the Rose Bowl making out? (laughs) I told him that UCLA was upset in Iowa handily because he wanted that game to end because the Orange Bowl wouldn't start till that game in. Both on NBC, as I said, so. He looked and watched one play with me, and he just yelled, stay in bounds twice. And the guy ran out of bounds, and he went, ah, you know, stop the clock. He wanted the clock to run. And then I led Oklahoma out. I was the first guy through the green canopy to go onto the field on national television. I was giving high fives to the players, watching them come out. I went out with the coaches, ran out, grabbed a towel that was on the bench that a trainer, a female trainer, was taking eye black. It was like rolling down his cheek off a play. Nowadays, they wear them all over their cheeks, but not then. I grabbed the towel. I've never washed it to this day. And as I black on it, 
<laughs> I put it around my shoulders and I just acted like I knew what I was doing. I watched the whole game from the Oklahoma sideline and nobody said a word to me. It was crazy, <laughs> except for what I told you. You know, there was no negative word to me. Like, what are you doing down here? Right. All of that stuff. And yeah, Penn State beat Oklahoma. Excuse me, Oklahoma beat Penn State 25 to 10 and won the national title. And then the next year is when Penn State upset Miami. But yeah, that was some fun times. But uh, yeah. And then years later, Arkeo at Miami, I went with Tusk. Todd Mealy and Scott Feldman, back when Miami was number one in the country in 02, they ended up losing to Ohio State. Yeah. In the But they were defending national champs, and Kehoe was awesome to us. I had met him before through Cantafio, and we got to do whatever we wanted. Kehoe took us in his offensive lineman meetings two days before the game. He hooked us up on the field. It was just unbelievable stuff. But I didn't belong in the locker room, but I went there that day too and was in the locker room and – Came out with them through the smoke and yeah, <laughs> some good times, but yeah, that's pretty good fun times. That's crazy. That is, that is, that is, uh, that's classic. Those are classic stories. Well, for, I appreciate you coming on and, uh, you know, I'm sure you could probably talk for another couple hours on uh, oh. different different stories you have. Maybe we'll save that for another time. But you got it. Chad, uh, thank you so much. Yeah. And what you're doing is 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 phenomenal. What you do with your football program, I appreciate that. And what you do with just being in the coaches association and your involvement, and then doing this this podcast and the people that you have had. I'm just honored to be able to be included with some of the names that you have on there because I have a lot of respect for for all of them. Yeah, absolutely, and you know that. The clinics are actually, you know, kind of the inspiration for this because there's so many good stories that guys have. And and obviously, you know, we're no one's getting any younger. So it's good to, it? it's good to kind of uh, have these uh, recorded and, and not forgotten. So, again, appreciate you coming on. And uh, you got it. Thank you very much. Right. I'll see you around. All right. Thanks, buddy. See you, buddy. Thanks. Again. All right. See you. Thanks for joining us this week on the PA Football Story podcast. Make sure to follow us on Twitter and Facebook or on our website, pafootballstory.podbean.com, where you can subscribe to the show on your preferred podcast platform or via RSS so you'll never miss a show. While you're at it, if you found value in this show, we'd appreciate a rating, a follow, a like, a share, or just simply tell a friend about the show.